Nathan Radke, and with me today is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, yeah. But we're still missing someone. Yeah, we're still missing Elena. She's still basically digging herself out from underneath a tree. <laughs> we wish her well. We do. I mean, uh, it's it's pretty close. I mean, she's got the the shed that was destroyed. The shed's been rebuilt. Uh, her and I, uh, we tore down the, the the old fence. Yep. A couple weeks ago, that was a lot of fun. There was a lot of sledgehammer work. The new fence is up. So. Elena will be back. She's coming for the next podcast, right? She's going to be here for the next podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I guarantee it. In the meantime, we're continuing uh, what we called our September 11th suite. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe that in our first episode, we didn't mention September 11th once. No, and I don't think we're going to mention it this time either, except in this intro. Yeah. I mean, this is the only time we're going to talk about it. But the important thing is that these are crucial ideas to understand when we eventually do talk about September 11th. That's right. It's coming. All right. So uh, the last time we talked about the idea of blowback, we talked about this concept that occasionally the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, without the knowledge of the American population, will be off sort of manipulating and messing with other countries. The example that we gave was the uh, Iranian coup in the 50s. Right. And then the effects of that will eventually come back and basically bite the American people. So, and the example from last week, or last time we recorded, was the uh, Iranian hostage crisis. Yeah, exactly. In the 1950s, the CIA helps organize a coup that takes out a democratically elected leader and installs sort of a puppet dictator. Eventually, after decades of living under that puppet dictator, the Iranian people rise up and overthrow him, and also have some beef with America at that point. And I, I think one of the things that really struck me in that episode was how bizarre it would seem as an American TV news watcher in when the hostage crisis was happening. I mean, I would think to myself, why do they hate Americans? What's going on here? What did we ever do to the Iranians? Yeah. Whereas, meanwhile, the CIA thinks not, hey, why do they hate us? But they think, uh-oh. Uh-oh. We have some blowback. <laughs> Today, we're going to continue looking at some CIA operations. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue looking at American foreign policy, sort of messing with other countries with some long-term ramifications, some horrifying ramifications, I would say. And of course, as we always do, we are going to continue talking about the Cold War. That is really what this podcast is about. These are spinoffs of the Cold War in a way, right? Uh, You know what I realized the other day? I watched Dr. Strangelove when I was very young. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that one fact, if you only know that one fact about me, that I watched Dr. Strangelove when I was too young, it explains almost everything about me. Well, funny you should mention that, because my daughter asked me the other day to list my favorite movies, and that was the first one that came out of my mouth. That was the first title. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Stop Worrying and and Love the the Bomb. bomb. (laughs) Does she want to see it now? No. Oh. Yeah, you don't want you don't want to turn your daughter into one of I, I think she was asking me to know which movies to stay away from. Right. Like which are the boring ones, but okay. So um today we're going as you're saying, we're gonna continue on this vein in terms of talking about counterintelligence operations and the fallout from them. I came across an interesting fact. If I were to ask you, based on the declassified information that we have, what was the most expensive 
and one of the longest-lasting counterintelligence operations uh, conducted by the United States. Well, if we're talking counterintelligence, then we're probably looking at like FBI or CIA. And uh, we've talked about, I mean, COINTELPRO was a, a pretty huge project, so it could be that. Uh, MKUltra, of course, which we've gone over, CIA yeah. project, that was pretty big. Yeah, I, well, it's got to be some kind of thing that the Americans had launched against the Soviet Union. That's right. That 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 is absolutely right. But this operation dwarfs, in terms of the expenditure, all of those that you've mentioned. And uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to help us much to know the name. It's called Operation Cyclone. And that is what this podcast is really about. What was the largest and one of the longest-lasting uh, American counterintelligence operations? And we will... Uh, finish off with uh, looking at some fallout, some blowback from that operation. And uh, it's all about this thing, this weird object, historical event called Project Cyclone. So uh, that's what we're going to look into. Okay. Now, normally, we go back to at least World War II before we try to talk about anything. That's right. So where are we going to go back and when are we going to go back? So... Uh, in doing my research for this, I'm going to give a couple of spoilers right now. Uh, so uh, Operation Cyclone is an American intervention during the 1980s in the country of Afghanistan. And in order to tell this story, I was going to start in the 1970s, which was a very turbulent time politically for Afghanistan, with at least three, if not more, depending on how you count them, uh, uh, regime changes, very significant regime changes with sort of coups and uh, counter coups and all of that. But then you probably thought, well, in order for me to talk about the 1970s, I should really set it up by explaining what happened in the 1960s. <laughs> that's right. And that just kept going and going for about 100 years into the past. So where did you land eventually? Uh, where so are you going to start this one? We're going to start this in the 1830s. <laughs> All right. If you want to talk about Afghanistan in the 1980s, you really got to start in the 1830s. All right, buckle up. <laughs> All right. Well, um, even before that, I'm just going to note a couple of facts about Afghanistan. Um, just so that we are uh, all on the same page. Because again, even though it's been in the news a lot, I don't think a lot of people, and that certainly included me, um, know that much of its history, its geography, its demographics. So just a couple of very basic facts about Afghanistan. It is a landlocked country. That's going to end up being quite important. It is one of the most, and again, I guess I, I'm skeptical of anything that says it is the most of anything, because I'm sure there's an exception, but it is claimed to be the most mountainous country in the world? Well, I mean, it depends, I guess, on how you define the most mountainous. Like That's the right. most amount of mountains, the <laughs> highest amount of mountains, the the highest average mountain height. That's it. So, so I had to say... Uh, it's got a lot so. of mountains. It's though. got a lot of mountains. It's got That's a lot the of point. Mountains. Um, it has a lot of other rather harsh climates or, or geographical terrain. It has deserts. It has steppes. A lot of mountains. Yeah, there, it gets both very hot and very cold. Exactly. It's hard to grow most crops there. Yeah, well, there are some very fertile valleys, but what you don't have are these big expanses of, you know, potential arable land. And just the country is very, is rather inhospitable, is a more difficult country maybe to colonize, actually, than other countries that have fewer mountains and have a nicer climate and are you know, sort of easier to get access And to. maybe you can sail a ship to. Yeah, exactly. So Afghanistan is bordered 
by Pakistan to the southeast, Iran to the southwest, and then sort of around the north from the west to mostly to the east is uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Ch- uh, Tajikistan. The stands. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I should probably mention I am going to butcher, I'm sure, every single Afghan name. And, and even some of the American names I think <laughs> I'm going to butcher <laughs> yeah, okay. when I try later to pronounce Zubiginu Brzezinski. Yeah. So we're going to have some issues in this podcast. But wait, it is also bordered by China towards the uh, sort of the east. So that's north. a pretty strategic little spot. Yes, indeed. It is uh, in the crossroads of empires. Uh, and this is going to impact Afghanistan throughout its history. In fact, there have been so many attempts to conquer Afghanistan, and they have been so difficult, even though there have been various uh, regimes that have succeeded temporarily. Alexander the Great's descendants, for example, uh, uh, did rule parts of Afghanistan for a while, the uh, Farthians, uh, 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 Persians, anyway. But Afghanistan has been notoriously difficult to conquer in large part because of its terrain. It has been known as the graveyard of empires. That's going to come back a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we move forward to the 1830s. And in the 1830s, there are really two gigantic world empires that emanate mostly... And I say mostly out of Europe because one of them is not a, it's not entirely clear if it's a European empire. We have England. Yep. And we all know about England. Sun um, doesn't set on them. Yeah. And uh, exactly. The sun never sets on the British Empire. And that was the empire that I knew a lot about. But it turns out there was a rival empire at this time as well. And it was the Russian Empire. Not the Soviet Empire at this point. Correct. This is the Russian, uh, the Russians of the Romanov family. They have an absolutely ginormous land empire. It is, unlike the British Empire, distinct in that Britain had uh, colonial territory all over the world. It was not physically connected to England. Right. There was like bits of England everywhere, but there wasn't one giant bit of England. That's right. There's Canada, there's Jamaica, there's Australia, Australia. there's many other places besides, right? And so uh, the, the the British Empire was was dispersed all over the world. Now the, the the Russian Empire was different in that all the pieces were connected to Russia, with the exception, and this is already uh, over in our story, with the exception of Alaska, which was the one piece of the Russian Empire that was overseas and then eventually sold to the Americans. Still, that almost was touching. There was times in history that was touched. That's right. It was, I mean, if you're going to go overseas, that's not very far. (laughs) So you have these two empires really gobbling up a lot of what's out there, gobbling up a whole bunch of the world and constantly coming sort of uncomfortably close to each other in some of these border territories. Now, especially in India, when England gets India uh, as its colony, This is a little too close to uh, Russia for comfort. That's right in Russia's backyard. Kind of, given how big Russia is. Yeah, big backyard. On the other hand, the Brits see India as the most valuable part of their colonial empire. It is the uh, jewel in the British crown. And they're really, frankly, worried about any kind of incursion into their colonial territories by, hey, another <laughs> colonial imperial power that might want to gobble up some of the world uh, for itself. 
Yeah, and, I mean, and that's what this was all about. It was all about grabbing as much land as you could, exploiting all the resources of the the people of those lands, and just sort of ma- like maintaining your massive empire. Exactly, and this really sets the kind of the tone, the the pattern, the dynamic for other countries' involvement in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a plaything for empires where they're often not even going in because they want Afghanistan or anything that Afghanistan has. They just want to keep other people out. So in this case, the Brits go into Afghanistan in order to keep the Russians out, and the Russians go into Afghanistan in order to get closer to India. And neither have gone into Afghanistan to help Afghanistan, to, uh, you know, make it even uh, an... Not that I personally think this would have helped Afghanistan, but you could imagine, say, the Brits saying, okay, we're going to make this part of our empire, we're Mm -hmm. going to set up schools, we're going to set up an infrastructure. English will now be the official language. You know. The typical British stuff. Exactly. None of this was of interest in Afghanistan. And this kind of dynamic of foreign powers coming in and meddling in the internal affairs of Afghanistan is a pattern well before the 1830s, but certainly from the 1830s right into the 1980s and later that we want to talk about, it really sets the stage. So you have these two superpowers, which are really, in their time, the biggest empires around with the most money around. The most land, too. The most land, the biggest armies, and they are going in there. And as a result of their intervention in this land, there are now four wars that happen uh, in Afghanistan. So you essentially have a set of wars that happened between Russia and England uh, throughout the 19th century, leading almost up to World War One. I. I mean, there was, and I'm just, I'm going to stop after the first two. There's the Anglo-Afghan War of 1838, the Anglo-Sikh War of 1848, the Second Anglo-Afghan War, and on and on it goes. That can't be good for a country. No. And that's just the beginning. So the reason we started here, and the reason I thought this was an important place to start, was that what ends up happening in the 70s, which we're going to see, is a sort of replay of these imperial powers, except that instead of it being England and, and Russia, now it's going to be the United States and the Soviet Union. Which at the time have replaced England and Russia as the dominant players in the global sort of in the big global game. Exactly. And just like this time, neither power go in trying to help Afghan civilians, trying to set up a, I don't know, a democratic government, which as we will see, Afghanistan actually had for a while. Anyway, this foreshadows the kind of history that happens in the 70s and 80s. And what I found so interesting about uh, the Russian-British encounter there is just that that was that it had been going on for so long already. Right. And 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 just to finish to round this off, just to give you a sense of how little how how little humanitarian notions there were on certainly the British side, for the Brits this was considered and it was officially called this. You can google this, you'll get a Wikipedia entry for it. It's called the Great Game. Oh, England. So the great game essentially is about how to keep Russia out of Afghanistan and out of any incursions into India. And so then that game is going to basically remain the same and then the players are going to switch up. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not going to go then through 
Because what, what happens then in the first half of the 20th century is you have a whole bunch of leaders switching back and forth. There's a bunch of coups. I will say a couple Big of things. Big pile of though. assassinations. Big pile of assassinations. I will say, though, that what you have now emerge historically is that you, because you have these two superpowers on sort of kind of encircling Afghanistan, any of the regional leaders who come up as a sort of a charismatic nation builder... In the past, they would have gone abroad to do some war uh, to gain political legitimacy. Now that those imperial ambitions are turned inwards into Afghanistan, and you start having leaders emerge who see themselves as trying to unify the country as a country and govern it as such. Because at this point, it's sort of a, a fractured system of various fiefdoms and warlords controlling different areas and sort of grabbing each other's territory. Yeah, and... That actually never changes. And I think that throughout my own research into this um, has been one of the most tragic misunderstandings about Afghanistan is that it, and maybe in part because of its geography, it has not really had very a very strong centralized ruler. What you have had is local rulers emerge that kind of govern their area. And that is still the case today. I mean, for all the talk about uh, Hamid Karzai or the Taliban or anybody else, I've not been there myself, but if you, you talk to uh, and listen to expats, locals, aid workers, even soldiers who are there on the ground talking about what the actual experience is there, it's all about the centrality and power of local leaders, local chieftains, and people who are really not in any way beholden to any kind of centralized ruler. And the other thing that's happening, and we talked about this in the last episode with Iran, there are sort of massive movements at play. And any group is going to be kind of a combination of different aspects of those, of those tensions. And I think one of the big tensions in Afghanistan would be this tension between what we'll call sort of traditional, traditional belief systems and, for the lack of a better word, modernization. That's right. And and so what you get is Afghanistan formally, and if you look into the history, it, it actually has its independence a bit earlier than the formal declaration of its independence, but it has a formal independence as of 1919. The guy who was in charge before that was a guy known as the Iron Emir. Ooh. And he was not a nice man. No, he's got uh, iron right in his name. Yeah. <laughs> and just to give you a sense of the one anecdote from his childhood, apparently he wanted to see if a gun could actually, like if his gun actually worked. And so without any any warning, he just shot a servant and did killed the, him. Did, so the gun worked? Yeah, the gun worked. Okay. And apparently the this guy who be, later becomes leader of Afghanistan laughs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, that's the... Now he was... Uh, he was a when he he takes over Afghanistan, and and I'm just gonna you know because we do start a hundred years ago. I'm gonna leave a lot of these details aside because we're trying to get to the 1980s. We'll but get when, there. when he takes over Afghanistan, he is very anti-modern because what he thinks is that modernization, things like introducing a railroad and stuff like that, will only make Afghanistan more attractive to foreign interests. Well, it's easier to invade a place if you can drive a train in. Yeah. And it's also easier to like see that there's something there worth having. Mm -hmm. you and know? start extracting resources. Exactly. So he does not want to modernize. But then by 1919, King Amanullah Khan, uh, who is sort of like 
he's the guy who declares Afghanistan a sovereign and independent state. He starts pushing modernization. Yeah, and and maybe too far too fast. I mean, he went, and I heard a quote that I thought was quite lovely. He wanted to bring Denmark to Afghanistan in a day. You Ooh, know, it's Denmark in a day. Denmark in a day. You know, it was this full civil liberties for women. It was going to be secularization. It was going to be all the whole thing. Instead, they have a civil war in 1928, basically between pro-modernization and anti-modernization factions. Yeah. Although, again, I am somewhat suspicious of some of these grand narratives that I've been reading about, in large part because I'm not entirely sure... Okay, let me put it differently. One of the things that I also discover in, discovered in doing this research is how skilled and sophisticated Afghan civilians are in playing off these imperial powers against each other. They're not just victims here. I mean, mm -hmm. there is a lot of victimization, and sure. it is a really tragic history. And the more I learned about it, the more angry and, you know, incensed I got. And yet, there was moments where I just had to smile to myself because they are also playing the imperial powers. You know, it would be the kind of stuff where, where you would have these imperial powers vying for regional loyalty. And, you know, the groups would say, well, we could be convinced if you pay. And maybe then if you give us some of this. <laughs> and then they go to the other side and they're like, maybe if you give us some of that. Exactly. So just, again, to fast forward the story a little bit and, uh, and to give a bit away, I came across an anecdote where while the Soviets and the Americans are doing this, um, the Afghans get the uh, Soviets with good concrete to build their grain silos, and then later they get the Americans to fill the grain silos. And actually, that story is good because it does sort of leap us ahead. Okay. Let, let's leap ahead. <laughs> are you sure we don't want to dwell more in the 1920s? Well, I mean, I mean, I always sort okay, of do. Okay, okay, okay. Let's leap ahead to uh, post-World War II. World War II happens... Now we've got the Cold uh, War. Uh, Afghanistan is neutral in World War II. Yeah, they stay out of it. And although that, they have some links to Germany and they've got some links to Russia still. Yeah. But that means then after World War II, there isn't an obvious alliance. Mm -hmm. And so now we're in the Cold War and the big players are now the Soviet Union and the United States. That's right. And in Afghanistan, we do have a king. And that is... Mohammad Zahir Shah. Thank you because uh, there was a hole in my notes there. So we have a king, and he is, you know, I mean, from the, from the reports that I've been reading, from he was not an evil person. No, or you know? a reactionary. He wasn't trying to sort of send Afghanistan back to a period in time. He was sort of a slow, cautious modernizer. Yeah, and so what you, what you get under him is some movement towards modernization, but I think if you're... You know, a city-dwelling, emerging, middle-class liberal, it's probably all much too slow for you. And maybe if you are, you know, very devout, maybe this is actually too much too fast. Yeah, because there's a lot of changes happening as far as women's rights, as far as land appropriation and that kind of thing. Now, part of the modernization is made easier because, as you pointed out with that story, both the Soviet Union and the United States are trying to win over Afghanistan to get that puzzle piece. <laughs> That's right. And they're doing this at this point in between like the 50s and the 70s. They're doing it through trying to give aid, mm -hmm. which is a pretty adorable way to wage war. Yeah. Like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on... I'm you on can board almost with be on board with... Uh, it kind of reminds me of divorced parents buying their kids yeah. like toys to try yeah. to win them over. Yeah. And so that's what you have... And you have, though, also a man named Mohammed Dawood Khan, 
and he starts becoming a player in the 70s. Now, in the... Now, he's a he's not the king, but he is the prime minister. He is the prime minister until he is sacked in 1953. Uh, no, sorry. He is, uh, becomes prime minister in 1953 and then is sacked in 1963. Mm-hmm. Now, but he sticks around. He sticks around. I mean, he's the cousin after all. And, you know, but he has also taken on board uh, some of the... Now this 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 is when you this is when you wish you had stuck around more in the early twentieth century to find out the complexities of this. But um, the Pashtuns, which are um, a major, well, now it gets complicated. They it, it, it just now gets complicated. It just now got a little more complicated. They are des, des, um, described as a tribe. I guess we could call them an ethnic group within Afghanistan. They're the largest, but not the majority, and some of them or a part of them, uh, are also in Pakistan. And Dawood Khan really took up the plight of the Pashtuns. And he begins a bloodless coup against his cousin while his cousin is away abroad. And his cousin is the king. His cousin is the king. And this happens in like 1973-ish. That's exactly right. It happens in 1973. And he, he installs himself not only as the prime minister, but also as the president. The first president ever. <laughs> the first president. This is an interesting thing, maybe generally about politics, but certainly about Afghanistan, is that once there's a layer of government that is introduced, it never disappears. So right. you just get layer upon layer. So now not only do you have a prime minister, but you also have a president. But what you no longer have is That's a right. king. I did just contradict myself. You did get rid of the layer of kingship. So uh, we uh, Dawood Khan abolishes the monarchy in 1973. Now, Khan is a modernizer, but there's a there's a more stuff going on here. There's there's a reaction where people find him too uh, much on board with the Pashtuns, too much Pashtun-centric kind of politics. For the more traditionalists, his modernization is much too uh, fast and, and much too aggressive. Mm-hmm. And for the more liberal modernizers, his modernization is much too slow That's and much too stodgy. That's a problem when you're, you're sort of trying to play the middle. Yeah. So, long story short, they're... Ooh, late. <laughs> uh, well, as, as, as much as we can, he is in turn deposed by... The People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. The PDPA. The PDPA, which is a communist party. They are pro-Soviet. They're no longer sitting on the fence. It's like, you know what? We've picked our side. It is the Soviet side. Yeah. And I think at this point, we might want to just pause and and dwell on the fact that the Cold, this is really how the Cold War in large part was waged. I know we've said this on previous podcasts, but Vietnam is a proxy war. Korea. Uh, Korea is another one. I mean, all these flashpoints, especially in the middle part of the 20th century, well, 1950s to 80s, is really in one way or another a standoff between the Soviet Union and the USA. Now, what do we mean when we say proxy war? This is a very specific idea, and it's it's crucial to understand to understand the Cold War. What is a proxy war? What is a proxy war, Nathan? Oh, okay. Well... (laughs) As we've said, I think this is the sentence that I've probably said more often than any other sentence. The Soviets and the Americans could not fight each other directly during the Cold War because of mutually assured destruction. But they still wanted to fight each other so bad. And like half of our podcasts are just explanations of the ridiculous ways that they fought each other. Some of those ways were hilarious. And some of those ways were tragic and terrible. 
like I think that the the stuff with Project Stargate and the ESP that was sort of hilarious. That was kind of funny. But proxy wars are awful. Proxy wars are because you can't have a Soviet soldier fighting an American soldier without it escalating to the point of nuclear destruction. What you need to do is you need to have sort of a go between, so that you can have the Americans can sort of support a side in a country, and the Soviets can support a side in a country. And this allows them to fight each other, but not fight each other directly. That's so, right. for example, North Korea and South Korea, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. That's a proxy war. Uh, yeah, and exactly. And lest we think that this is particular to, you know, the USA and the Soviet Union, this is really a staple of modern 20th century uh, international politics, which is often known as realpolitik. Real politics is done this way. Uh, you undermine uh, your enemies by funding their enemies. Well, for example, uh, just recently we've had an attack on a Saudi Arabian oil field, and people were making the argument that that was actually a proxy attack carried out secretly by Iran against yeah. their enemy, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And, I mean, not that I condone any of these things, but just logically it makes total sense. To not do it as a, as a leader of a country would put your country and your people in immense danger. So the, it makes a, a horrifying kind of logical sense. Yeah. Uh, my favorite example is during the First World War, Russia is at war with Germany among others, of course. Germany is trying to figure out a way to destabilize Russia. So they go to Switzerland and get, you know, Lenin, one of the one of one of the real radical revolutionaries, send him back and to a, Russia. And a huge enemy of the Russian royal family. Exactly. And it worked out perfectly from the perspective of the German belligerents at that time. It made uh, Russia drop out of the war because they were consumed with their own internal uh, problems. To be able to affect this kind of thing in another country is brilliant if you can pull it off from your own political perspective, irrespective of, you know, the rights and dignity of the lives that are destroyed. Put that aside and just look at the cold if, politics If you look at it. humans as game pieces yeah. and you're trying to win this game, then it makes sense. Did I? Did, we did mention that it was called The Great Game, The right? Great Game. Yeah. And at this point, I want to take a quick break and... Because that was that was a lot. That was intense. This is something, Lee, that happens to me a lot, and I'm sure it happens to you a lot, and I guarantee you it happens to Elena all the time. When people find out that you study conspiracy theory, mm. one of the things they'll always ask is, so explain to me September 11th. Oh, uh, yeah. And what I always have to say is, I'm going to need like 12 hours. Yeah. Because you got to start in the 1830s in Afghanistan, right? Mm. I mean, and this is, you're absolutely right. I feel like... In order to be able to have an opinion about September 11th, that what I have started to do now is when people, if people ask me a question, I'll I'll do my best to answer it. But if people come to me with an with their own opinion, the first thing I start now is with tell me the history of Afghanistan mm -hmm. or the re relevant history for the conspiracy that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I have not met somebody who can give me a thorough history of Afghanistan, just the relevant stuff, like mm -hmm. just the. You know, the stuff that we're just, just about to come strokes. to. Yeah. Yeah. So now what we're going to do is we're going to, I think, make it more clear why this story is important. Yeah. Because now we're in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. We've got Afghanistan ruled by a very pro-Soviet uh, leadership. Yeah. At the middle of the Cold War. Yeah. And then what happens? 
because I'm not sure how deep we're going into this, is that we're not now talking about the internal coup within the PDPA, are we? Or we're talking about the American reaction. Uh, let's briefly discuss the internal coup in the... Oh, boy. So the PDPA is uh, ruled by uh, President Nur Mohammed uh, Taraki, who is sort of, again, a moderate. But then there's a fight within the PDPA. He is replaced by Hafizullah Amin, who can only be described as just a brutal psychopath. Immediately, like, thousands of people go missing. and yeah. And the Soviets are like, oh, what? Yeah, what we, just happened to our we, neighbor? What, they're supposed to be, you know, this was supposed to be, in a sense, a puppet regime, or at least one very pliable. And now we've got this radical guy, you know, who is dangerous and is, in some sense, more left than the Soviet Union. Are saying something? <laughs> And so now the Soviets come in. That's right. And immediately kill Amin. Yeah. Like so, they just go in first thing, bump him off. So this then is the beginning of the Soviet Afghan war. This is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Happens in December 1979. And I'm really pushing the fact that it was December because of once we get into the American involvement, the fact that the Soviets go in in December 1979 is going to be crucial. Yeah. So what Afghanistan devolves into at this point now is one of these flashpoints like Vietnam, like, you know, North Korea, one of these uh, places where there is a hot war that is being, that is to say, a war with actual guns that are actually being fired. It's the Russians, the Soviets, that is to say, and they are fighting or they are invading the country and they're going to attempt to subdue it. Now, let's briefly go back in time. Yes, because that's what the listeners want. That's what the <laughs> listeners want. But the listeners are like, no, go back in time now. <laughs> Let's go back in time very briefly and discuss the American involvement in Vietnam, which in some ways there's a lot of parallels between the Soviets going into Afghanistan and the Americans going into Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So the Americans go into Vietnam in the 1960s. Uh, again, that's a colonial country that has been sort of oppressed by the French and they've thrown the French out. And then the Americans get involved because there's increasingly a communist presence in North Vietnam. That communist presence, of course, supported by the Soviet Union. Now, the Americans have a very complicated relationship to the war in Vietnam. They should have won it. They had a pretty good record in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. They were like 3-0-1, because Korea was a tie. <laughs> right, okay. And so the Americans had massive numerical superiority. They had way more resources. Their weapons were far more modern. Yep. They, they had everything. But why was the Vietnam War so difficult for the Americans to fight? What were some of the reasons? Well, I think um, there's a number of reasons. One of them is the, the problem with conventional versus guerrilla warfare. Right. So conventional warfare is actually a very modern type of warfare. It's not the kind of war that humans have been fighting since time immemorial. That's guerrilla warfare. Modern warfare relies on very large armies um, with a lot of equipment, that is, and it's very easy to tell the difference between the armies. Exactly. You can see them coming. They, they wear uniforms and they got tanks. Mm -hmm. And what they try to very do is... clear rules of engagement. Yes. I mean, they often don't follow them, but at least, you know, uh, they have them. And they tend to take physical infrastructure. They take cities. They fortify those cities. It's like, that city is now mine. Right? And so then there's uh, a line that's like, oh, there's the line. That side is the other side, and this side is our side. That's right. And and what, what armies facing a massive army 
a massively superior army have done in the past is is uh, wage what's known as unconventional warfare. Here, you don't dress up like a soldier. You look like a civilian. You do raids on places which you don't capture and hold. Right, you do hit and runs. Exactly. Sabotage, assassination. This kind of stuff really demoralized American soldiers, you know, because you would never know you didn't know in what village the the resistance was coming from or being supported from. Uh, you didn't know when the attacks would happen. There was no warning. And the terrain. Like, it, it's hard to fight in a jungle. You can have your modern equipment, but in a jungle, it's really difficult to... Especially if you're just arriving there as some 19-year-old kid, you yeah. know, from from Tennessee or whatever, and, and you're fighting people who have lived there their entire lives. Uh, this is, again, of course, exactly a parallel to Afghanistan, where the people who have lived there their entire lives know these paths like the back of their hand. They know where their caves are. They know where their safe houses are. They know where their safe villages are. They know the paths. They can go through deserts. You know, which which you, you show up there and all the mountains just look the same. So now we've had a situation where one of the big superpowers, the Americans have gone into a war that they, on paper, should have won. Yeah. And yet because of the terrain, because of the political situation, the social situation, asymmetrical warfare, guerrilla tactics, uh, they, end I up, just throw- they, they never lose a battle, basically, but they lose that war. Exactly. And I just throw in one more really important factor, which is that who cares more in the Vietnam War. The Vietnamese who are defending their own villages, or again, some 19-year-old kid who's just being... Just wants to you go know, home. Exactly, just ripped out of university, ripped out of his, his, his family life, thrown into this miserable situation to fight some ideological, political regime. Like, it doesn't... It's hard to get motivated around yeah, something like that. it's bad for morale. Yeah. So then, that was a huge loss for the Americans, and a huge, like a huge feather in the cap of the Soviets because the Americans look terrible yeah. in the international stage and they've lost a bunch of humans and they've lost a bunch of material and they've lost a bunch of money. Yeah. But now the Soviets have gone into a country that has a lot, even though it's a completely different country from Vietnam, yeah. a lot of weird parallels. So apparently the, the United States saw this as a way to trap the Soviet Union in, quote-unquote, their own Vietnam. So there was an attempt during the 1970s to actually do whatever the whatever was possible to do to lure the Soviets uh, militarily into Afghanistan, precisely so that what happened to the Americans would happen to them. They would look stupid. They would lose a whole bunch of money. And this would be a kind of a counter feather in the Americans' cap. Yeah, because, I mean, it was hard for the Americans to fight in the jungles of Vietnam. It's going to be hard for the Soviets to fight in the mountains of Afghanistan. Yeah. It was hard for the Americans to tell the difference between the North Vietnamese army and the population. It's going to be hard for the Soviets to tell the difference between the army they're fighting and the population. And exactly that happened, right? I mean, exactly uh, when the Soviets are in there, it's a nightmare. I mean, it's a nightmare certainly for the Afghan population who, and I have, they're really very drastically different numbers in large part because to this day, my understanding is to this day, there has not been a census in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So the numbers are just all over the map. But uh, I've heard of um, actual casualties ranging between half a million and two million people. That's actual deaths. So you have to think about for every death, there are, there's all the tragedy of the people that are left behind. And it doesn't account for... 
injuries, uh, injuries refugees, named. all of that kind of stuff. I've heard as many as 6 million ref, uh, people were made refugees. And again, you think to yourself, and just in listening, and we're going to see the American response in just a second, but again, you think to yourself, there is no concern here for Afghanistan as a political community, for the mm -hmm. civilians there. This really just, again, seems like this pawn in global power play. Yeah. I really was hammering on the fact that the Soviets invaded in December 1979. And now I'll explain why. <laughs> because in March of 1979, which is like half a year earlier, yep. the CIA starts planning to draw the USSR into Afghanistan. I think that the official story is, oh, the Soviets invaded and then the Americans responded. I would make the argument that, no, the Americans actually were plotting to try to draw the Soviets in. The president at the time of the United States was Jimmy Carter. His national security advisor was named... Here we go. Zbigniew Brzezinski. Okay. And here's a quote from him. We didn't push the Russians to intervene, but we knowingly increased the probability they would. Right. So there you go. So right. I think that's sort of the beginning, which can now take us into Operation Cyclone. Finally. Right. I'd like, the, I'd like the 40 minute mark. Finally. Well, that's it. That's how... Because, you know, the other day... Sorry, this is a bit of a... Uh, Inside a, baseball? Well, no, it's a bit of a tangent, but I think it really talks to our method. My, uh, my daughter comes home from school the other day telling me about the... She's nine years old, and she, they had talked about at school, they had talked about the September 11th terrorist attacks. And I said, oh, okay, so tell me what happened. And she said, well, some guys got into a plane, and they flew them into the buildings. And I said, well, okay... That, and she's just finished reading the Harry Potter series. And I'm sorry yeah. for anybody out there who hasn't read it yet. Oh, spoiler um, alert. Spoiler on Harry, alert. But nobody was expecting to get Harry Potter spoilers <laughs> on this episode, but carry on. So I say to her, I say, that would be like, that would be like telling the Harry Potter story like this. Harry Potter kills Lord Voldemort. He's dead. The end. And it's like, okay, but w w where's the story there? I mean, mm -hmm. who is this guy Voldemort and who's Harry Potter and what? What is their beef with each other? And, all, you know, and I think that's why you got to do this background work, because in a sense, September 11th is the end of the story. You know, it's the final big conclusion of whatever we might be talking about. And then about. the beginning of other stories. Other stories, indeed. But you can't start with, like, these guys who get a passport and get on a plane. I mean, what the hell is going on and here? And that's why the very next day you went to your daughter's class and did an eight-hour lecture <laughs> on the history of Afghanistan. <laughs> that is yet to come. We got this guy in America. His name is Charlie Wilson. He's a Texas politician. Congressman. Texas. Congressman, that's right. And... Um, He's listening to AP News uh, in, the, in 1980, uh, and he's listening to the atrocities being committed by the Soviets. Now, lest it sound like we're partial in any way on this podcast, it's, I, I just got to say, you're never going to get a clean war. War is always going to come not only with just uh, deaths, but civilian deaths, children's deaths, rapes. That is just going to be part of every single war. I don't care what the news agencies are telling us. Yeah, the, the, war is terrible. War, war is an war is utter terrible. disaster. And of course, now, if you want to, if you're playing this Cold War propaganda game and you want to make your enemies look like monsters, you know, you just show them what is actually happening on the ground in Afghanistan. And, and, and hide what you do. Yeah, of course, or or don't, at least don't go into any great detail, or what we do is to help and what they do is to hurt and that kind of stuff, fine. Mm -hmm. So 
We have uh, Charlie Wilson, congressman uh, in um, uh, uh, for Texas in the United States in the 1980s. He's listening to this and he gets upset. Uh, and I'm going to take, I'm going to give you the, here like the like the most naive and trust trusting interpretation of his motivation. You're going to be very charitable to this guy. Thank you. That was a more succinct way of putting it. So yeah, let's just say. He is not particularly motivated, first and foremost, by just showing up the Russians, showing up the Soviets, making them look stupid, but actually is motivated by what he's seeing on the news and concern. He starts lobbying Congress to make some money available that's not public knowledge. So, again, this is a counterintelligence operation. It's going to be a secret operation. So done through the CIA, then? Done through the CIA, where the money does not appear in the public purse. Like, it's not like you can go and ask for, you know, a Freedom of Information Act request and see how much are we spending on, you know, supporting a counterinsurgency in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. But that's exactly what they did. It's just spearheaded by Charlie Wilson. There is a, a movie made about this whole thing called Charlie Wilson's War, starring Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks plays a very charitable Charlie Wilson. The guy was a partier, you know? I mean, And he was a 1980s partier. He was a 1980s partier. So We're if you're a 1980s partier, that is... Hot tubs, cocaine, you know, prostitutes. This was all part of the scene for Charlie Wilson. But okay, that's an ad hominem. I won't go further into his character. But he spearheads this counterintelligence funding to to create a counterinsurgency within the uh, within Afghanistan by funding a group of religious extremists known as the Mujahideen. Now it's important that they're religious extremists because what they're trying to do is portray the Soviet occupation as not just an occupation from a foreign country, but an occupation from like godless heathens. Right. And attacking the Holy Land. That's right. And from the American perspective, what group do you not have to convince to hate the Soviets? I mean, the longer the Soviets are there, the less you have to convince anybody. But yeah. right from the get-go, Islamic fundamentalists have an issue with the Soviet Union because exactly as you say... They're it, Marxists. They're Marxists or they're covert... Uh, Crusaders? Yes, but what's what is uh, Russian Orthodox Christians? Oh yes, right. you know they're either they're either one kind of he, uh, uh, heresy or another. Yep, they are a ready-made fighting group. Now it's important though to note that there were other people within Afghanistan, many who were very much against the Soviet Union, who were not Marxists, who were not religious extremists, who were liberal secularists, who were religious moderates who were social democrats uh, who wanted elections and no association with the Soviet Union. There were all of these groups. The United um, States, though, chose to fund the most extreme. Well, let me give you an example of, of the sort of person that they could have funded. There was, for example, Amina Kamal, mm -hmm. who I'm sure that, that you've come across in your research. She founded the Revolutionary Association of the Women of yes. Afghanistan, or RAWA. It's an... <laughs> so amazing. That yeah, it, incredible woman. 1977, she forms this. In 1981, she founds a feminist magazine called yep. Women's Message yep. and prints it in Afghanistan. Uh, she's married to Dr. Faiz Ahmad, who uh, himself is the founder of the Afghanistan Liberation Organization. So there are a bunch of people in Afghanistan who are genuinely trying to work for the people of Afghanistan. 
But that's not necessarily who the Americans are looking for. No, they they are very happy to choose the most brutal, the most religious extremist who are not necessarily actually contrary to popular opinion today about Afghanistan, don't necessarily have broad-based support among the population. Sure, there'll be people who support them, yes, but they are certainly not... Representative of the will of the people. Exactly. Uh, They were really just a a ready-made group of radicals that that were there... Uh, and that we're willing to uh, to cause some violence to the Soviet Union. Yeah, let's look at, I mean, there's so many, it's so complicated. Let's look at one guy. Let's yeah. look at one guy, like one of the main guys that the CIA gave a ton of money to. And that is, of course, Golbidin Hekmatyar. Yeah, and I've heard that name pronounced in all kinds of ways. This is, I'm this, sure I okay. did it wrong there. Well, this is, so he's one of these... Um, kind of regional warlords who really ascends to power and is extremely brutal. Uh, acid uh, thrown into women's faces or onto their legs was common practice in areas that he controlled. Yeah. Um, there was other forms of just absolute brutality, maiming, torturing, you, you just the whole gambit. And there's nothing good you can say about the man. Well, eventually he would he would acquire the nickname the Butcher of yeah. Kabul. yeah. Like, there is no upside. And this is not a guy that has a lot of grassroots support. But what he does have is sort of the right attitude to murder as many Soviets as possible. Yeah. So that's the guy. So Mina Kamal, she has a feminist magazine. She's not getting the funding. The butcher gets the funding. The acid thrower gets the funding. You know, in in learning about this, it also seemed to me like these are the kinds of decisions you would make as an American policymaker if you were absolutely 100% sure that this would never come back and bite you. Right. Right? I mean, what... What could happen? What could possibly happen by... So what did happen actually in the 1980s? What exactly is Cyclone? Well, it is the funding uh, through actual just transfer of money, training through the CIA of fighters and the delivery of weapons that happens mostly through actually a lot of this happens through Pakistan so the way you kept the way this was actually kept secret from the american people is not that just so suddenly you know hundreds of millions of dollars go missing but hundreds of millions of dollars are allocated to Pakistan for various, you and, know. And often you had to like first funnel that money through Israel and yeah, then yeah, it gets yeah, funneled yeah, through yeah, Egypt yeah. Exactly. and then it gets to Pakistan exactly. and then it turns into weapons and then it goes to exactly. Afghanistan. Exactly. That was what Operation Cyclone was, was the funding of the Mujahideen to make them into an absolutely, you know, fierce fighting force against the Soviet Union. Yeah, and they were. Yeah, they were. They were trying to turn the country of Afghanistan, which was filled with human beings. Yeah, they were trying to turn the country of the CIA was trying to turn the country of Afghanistan into a massive machine for the murder of Soviet soldiers. Yeah, I mean, I would even be, I would even be slightly more generous and say, the CIA didn't actually think about what happens to the civilians. Doesn't matter. What matters is. We gotta we gotta hurt the Soviet Union, and these guys seem like the best people to do it. So they start funding, and I've seen numbers again that vary really quite a lot. The funding starts in the tens of millions in the early '80s, so we're talking about 40 million kind of stuff. And I've seen it the a lot of 
one of the consistent numbers that keeps coming up is about three to six hundred million a year mm-hmm. over a time period of many years. But I've seen the figure as high as two billion. Well, I mean, just Goldbit and Hekmat Yar's organization itself, because of course there were so many different organizations within yeah. Mujahideen, but just Hekmat Yar receives about 600 million from the CIA. It goes uh, you, to the Butcher of Kabul. You cannot see, but I have my hands up, I have my eyebrows raised, my jaws dropped. You know, I mean, and this is the largest counterintelligence operation the United States has ever engaged in. I mean, there is... Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars going to these guys every year, year after year throughout the 80s. And what is that money going to? This is the interesting thing. This is why we had to go back and talk about the way the war was fought in Vietnam. Because the way that they're going to be able to kill as many Soviets as possible isn't through conventional warfare. Mm -hmm. It's through developing terrorist tactics. That's right. We're back to unconventional guerrilla warfare. I mean, already you... None of this is being waged with traditional arms, traditional armies, that is. These are all kind of local-based rulers who are, well, okay, actually not all local-based. There's a lot of Pakistan that gets involved in this later on in the story. But they are people who, yeah, their 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 leadership is, uh, uh, their, their whole approach is not the kind of conventional army stuff. They're building fortresses in the mountains. I mean, these bunkers that were being targeted by the U.S. airstrikes in the mid-2000s. There were these massive underground uh, bunkers, fortresses, tunnels, all of this kind of stuff. I mean, this is precisely the stuff, that the foundations of which was being laid at this point. And it isn't just the tactics and the material. It's also the emphasis on the Americans are really pushing the idea that this is a holy war. Yep. This is jihad. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a term that I think we briefly have to describe because, I mean, neither of us are religious scholars, but I've talked to much more uh, wise people than us. And the way I understand jihad is that jihad refers to struggle. Jihad refers to the struggle of trying to like be the best person that you can be, to try to help your community. Like That's what jihad means. But I think it's at this point where jihad starts to take on this sort of sinister connotation, that jihad is... Uh, a holy war that you launch with these sort of take-no-prisoners terrorist tactics. But where are those tactics, where are they coming from? Uh, often they are coming from CIA trainers. That's right. And they're also going to um, introduce, <laughs> you know, novel ways of doing things. Like, hey, you know, lots of things can be a bomb. You sure. don't. You don't just. I mean, this is CIA stuff, right? This yeah. is all in their handbooks. I'm. I'm not saying anything that if you've read a CIA handbook would be yeah. controversial. This is exactly what you're supposed to do as a spy, as an insurgent. Use what's available to you. Hey, if a truck is available, that could be a bomb. Sure. Right. Improvised explosive devices or exactly. IEDs. Now, because this is turned into sort of a greater holy war, this isn't just about Afghanistan, the Soviet Union. This becomes. Uh, this sort of jihad holy war against uh, the godless invader. And so other people, other foreign fighters start to come into Afghanistan to get a piece of this war. Yeah. This reminds me actually a lot of the um, Soviets trying to control the PDPA and actually realizing that it was out of their control at some point. Mm -hmm. And I think this is exactly what happens here is you have a religious, a fundamentalist religious ideology stoked by... What's happening, you know, with the the atrocities with the Soviet Union, but then a a resistance being funded. And now suddenly people are like, yeah, 
this is great. Like, let's get on board with this. And you have, and of course, this is what we're leading up to, you have the beginnings of, you know, uh, fighters from outside of Afghanistan, people who are looking at this, but also people, and this I think is important for our story, people who are now outside of Afghanistan because they were made refugees. Mm -hmm. We have the beginnings of Mm Al-Qaeda, which is the uh, Osama bin Laden's radical terrorist outfit. Well, and of course, Osama bin Laden during the 1980s did come to Afghanistan to to train at what has been basically described, Afghanistan in the 80s, as basically a a terrorist university. Sure. It has been turned into a terrorist university. The first professors are CIA professors. I have a quote here from somebody who was with the Mujahideen. Uh, This was in the mid-90s. Yes, the whole country is a university for jihad, exactly as they say. There are many formal training centers, and the Islamic Party has many such schools. We have had Egyptians, Sudanese, Arabs, and other foreigners trained here as assassins. And again, Osama bin Laden, who works with Golbidin Hekmatyar. Yep. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard the idea that Osama bin Laden was trained by the CIA. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't come across any evidence that he was directly contacted by the CIA, right. have you? No, I haven't. But we do have evidence that he was working with and training with people who were trained by the yeah, CIA. Yeah, and I, I have no doubt, you know, I mean, it, it makes total sense. But, I mean, it, at this point, it seems almost irrelevant whether he is precisely trained by a CIA operative. We have the conditions now mm-hmm. for this kind of radical jihadism to, 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 to kind of go off on its own. Yeah, I have another quote from another Mujahideen commander. For us, Afghanistan is destroyed. It is turning to poison. And not only for us, but for all others in the world. If you were a terrorist, you can have shelter here, no matter who you are. Day by day, there is the increase of drugs. Maybe one day they will have to send hundreds of thousands of troops to deal with that. And if they step in, they will be stuck. We have a British grave in Afghanistan. We have a Soviet grave. And then we will have an American grave. Right, 1994. Wow. Wow. And it it wasn't like the Americans weren't warned about this. In the 1980s, when it looked like this whole plan Operation Cyclone was going really well because the Soviet Union was bleeding. Oh, yeah. It was bleeding in the mountains of Afghanistan. They couldn't fight very well in the mountains. They're getting shot down now. They're right, they've shot. got they got surface-to-air missiles. Now their you know their air superiority counts for a lot less than yeah. it did. And on the ground, it's hard to fight in this terrain. Yeah, and so the Americans are thinking, "Oh, this is going great. We are really knocking right. the Soviets back in yeah. this country." Not paying that much attention to the fact that this country, of course, is absolutely getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so the president of Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto in the late 1980s, told George Bush Sr., who was the president of the United States at the time, quote, You are creating a Frankenstein. End quote. Yeah. I think there were a lot of prescient uh, people who saw what was going on and who really wanted to change the course. I mean, Pakistan was involved in this. They were knowingly supplying the money to the Mujahideen. They themselves historically had an interest in a destabilized Afghanistan, as long as it didn't get too destabilized. Yeah, you don't want it too destabilized. You don't want to turn it into Jihad University. Exactly. You just want to destabilize enough that they're not going to bother you, that they're kind of messing with their own thing. You want it to be more of a community college. (laughs) Not that ambitious. 
what happens in our story now, so so the Soviets, because of reasons of their own, have to leave Afghanistan in 1989. I mean, it hasn't gone well for them. Although, I mean, the war in Afghanistan is a big part of what started happening yes. to the Soviet Union. Oh, sure. Basically, I mean, like Gorbachev comes in the 80s. He, has an in, he notices that his empire is unsustainable. It's going to collapse. Yeah, and he tries to make changes, uh, Perestroika and uh, Glasnost. But, you know, it, it, to some extent, it's too little too late. But either way... The one thing you can't be doing when your when your empire is collapsing is fighting a war. No. So they're, you know, seeing the writing on the wall, they pull out. They get out of there. Now the Americans see this as job done. Yeah. Right? Okay. The Soviets are gone. Again. We won. Right. Game we're, over. Exactly. Right? We're not there for the Afghans. Forget them. So as soon as the the Soviets leave and they leave somebody in charge and the Soviets leave and leave Najibullah in charge. He's he's there for a couple of years, and then the proverbial stuff really hits the fan. Because what you actually have with the Soviets and the Americans leaving is a power vacuum. Yep. I mean, you had Soviet puppets there and whatever, but without the Soviet military and without the Americans um, on the other side, who is left now? Who is really left in Afghanistan to take control of the situation? Maybe it'll be somebody like Mina Kamal, except, of course, she's already been murdered. Right. She was murdered by Golbidin Hekmatyar in 1987. Maybe her husband, Dr. Faiz Ahmad, except he's already been murdered right. by Hekmatyar in 1986. Yeah. It's really amazing that you could see this coming. I mean, you can just see it coming like... It's the most obvious thing that if you leave a power vacuum like this, obviously the Mujahideen came in. Mm -hmm. So they came in and there is now a lot of unrest as we've been talking about them as a unified group, although we've been talking about Hekmaitar as one of them, but they're not a unified group. They're a unified group in as much as the Russians or the Soviets. They got a common enemy. Yeah, exactly. Now that the common enemy is gone and the funding is gone too, there is a civil war that starts and different groups are in charge different times. I think this is where a lot of us born, let's say in the 70s or in the 80s, we sort of come online with a political consciousness around this time. And, you know, you turn on the TV and that's the mess you see. That's the kind of Afghanistan I've grown up with. It's just this litany of warlords warlords and dirt poor and no infrastructure and women in burqas and all of that, right? And well, importantly, that they're forced to be right. They, yes. It isn't a choice that they have, but they're right. forced to be. No, exactly. I mean, what I'm using here are just tropes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I'm not making any uh, claim myself about what that means. It's just that as an image on TV, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of get a sense that oh yeah, that they're, they're not doing well, and it's probably right. always been like that. Mm-hmm. This civil war, and again, we can't dwell here too long, but the civil war is eventually quote unquote won in a sense by this new group that emerges. Oh yeah. Right? We'd forgotten about these group these guys, the Taliban. Right. Now the Taliban I heard refer by um an expatriate of Afghanistan, he referred to the Taliban as the old refugee boys, as those children who were made refugees during the Soviet-Afghan war, yeah, and are now in their 20s and 30s, you know, mad as hell. <laughs> and, right. un- you know, had no access to public secular education or 
anything useful. They grew well, up. Well, they have some useful training. Yeah, they did have some useful training that certainly came in useful. But yeah, they've got some very useful training in terrorist attacks, oh. and they've got useful training in bomb making. And so they emerge now in 1996 in Afghanistan, and they are, you know, if they are a really radical, hardcore group of fanatics who basically have an ideology of holy war. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the prime minister of Afghanistan in 1996, Gobidin Hekmatyar. Wow. No. The butcher of Kabul. So now... <laughs> oh, well, here's where I think we can take this now. Here's an important <laughs> yeah. thing. So the Soviets are gone. The Soviets, the Soviets in part because this was a success. And yeah. I say success with scare quotes because yeah. obviously it was a horrifying disaster. But it was a success. It helps to destroy the Soviet Union. The Americans pull out. Then the Americans launch a war in the Middle East in 1991. At basically the exact same time the Soviets are collapsing, the Americans start to go into the Middle East. They go into Iraq. Mm -hmm. They put soldiers in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. It looks like there is a new godless imperial army. Right. If you're... Oh, and we've seen these guys before, if you've grown up there, right? I mean, yeah. even in Iraq, this is like, it. you would not have had the kind of intervention you had in the 90s, in the 80s. But this is news maybe to us who grew up in the West, right? But if you grew up in these areas, I don't think that you had such a sunny view of American intervention overseas. No, absolutely not. And so then, because now the Americans have replaced the Soviets to a degree yeah. as the enemy in this holy war, yeah. like then those those very tactics. This is what Butoh was saying when you said when she said you are creating a Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Because of course, spoiler alert for Frankenstein. Eventually, Frankenstein destroys its own creator. We have just we have just oh, ruined that's... two literary works. Yeah. <laughs> and so then, not too long after this. One of the Mujahideen, one of the people who was funded and trained by the CIA, one of the people who had received protection from the CIA, organizes an attack, a terrorist attack, not on the Soviet Union, but on the new enemy, the United States, and that attack is directed against the World Trade Center in the United States, New York City. Hold on a second. I thought that it was the Taliban or Al-Qaeda who attacked the World Trade Center. Ah, but this is the 1993 World Trade Center. Oh, because of course. The, the, the one that because it forgotten. had happened before. Yeah, exactly. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who was in the United States, living in New Jersey, thanks to the CIA, because the CIA saw him as such a valuable asset for recruiting uh, for the Mujahideen. So he was being protected in the United States, but of course he had turned his anger with the absence of the Soviet Union, he had turned his anger to the new boss, mm -hmm. the Americans, and he was the one who then organized that attack on the World Trade Center. Right, and just to uh, remind listeners, because of course it had actually slipped my mind the first time you mentioned it, um, this was an attack where uh, explosives were put into the basement of the World Trade Center tower. In a van. In a van. And a rented the, van. And the idea was uh, it was going to bring down the World Trade Center towers. Yeah, it didn't work that well. No. And the whole plot wasn't... Didn't really work at all. I mean, it, the, the no, bombs it, went off, as far as I remember, and there was a there was sort of an explosion. It, it Yeah, it did, certainly didn't bring those towers down. Uh, and then they were able to catch some of the perpetrators when they showed up at the rental office to get their deposit back. <laughs> There's a tip for you. Don't... Just forget the deposit. <laughs> yeah. And so, and of course, when that happened, 
the American people again were like, well, why would they hate us? Why are these Afghans attacking us? I mean, you're right. This does have a lot of parallels with the hostage crisis of uh, in Iran a decade earlier. Yeah. Right? It just seems like out of the blue. This weird thing happened. But why? But why with these people? We're not even at war with them. Yeah. And then out loud, the American government says things like, well, they hate our freedoms. Right. They hate our democracy. Right. Where secretly the CIA says, uh-oh. Uh-oh. This is blowback. Looks like we got some blowback from Operation Cyclone. Mm-hmm. But I'm surely that's the only blowback there was. Yeah. That's got to be the end of that's it. That's it. Yeah. <sighs> I want to end. I want to go back to Mina Kamal for a second. And we'll end this. I, I mentioned that she was assassinated by Hekmat Char in 1987. I want to I read this. This is from the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan. And I think that this is like her epitaph. Okay. And maybe it could serve as an epitaph for what could have happened hmm. in Afghanistan if, there ha- if it hadn't been used as this piece in this Cold War game. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's the, here's the epitaph for Mina and maybe the epitaph for all of us in a way. Mina gave 12 years of her short but brilliant life to struggle for her homeland and her people. She had a strong belief that despite the darkness of illiteracy, ignorance of fundamentalism, and corruption and decadence of sellouts imposed on our women under the name of freedom and equality, finally, that half the population will be awoken and cross the path towards freedom, democracy, and women's rights. The enemy was rightly shivering in fear by the love and respect that Mina was creating within the hearts of our people. They knew that within the fire of her fights, all the enemies of freedom, democracy, and women would be turned to ashes. I'm sad. Yeah, I can't follow it up, but I'm glad that we ended with remembering her. Mm -hmm. Because it's precisely not that Afghanistan is just this, you know, dark place of ignorance superstition and religious intolerance it it again uh there's a lot of people in there who have been trying very hard despite all these pressures to to destroy their country to make something out of it and to live a dignified decent life and yeah and once again we come to the conclusion which always seems to be our conclusion that lots of individual people who just were trying to go about their day got caught up in the massive game that was the Cold War. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but please email us. <laughs> we enjoy getting emails. You can see how sad we're getting. Yeah. Like, we need your emails at this point. We are getting so bummed out. We also need Elena, I think. Yeah, this that's is true. Well, two, she'll, she'll two, be... two guys are sort of like disintegrating into tears here. <laughs> yeah. So email us to cheer us up at podcast at theuncoverup.com. The other thing, uh, Mm. very exciting, is we have a big live podcast. If you're in the Toronto area, if you are in the Toronto area, we're going to do a great big live podcast at the Harborfront Center, November 2nd. Uh, It's going to be pretty exciting. We're going to be talking about CIA and FBI and probably getting pretty sad again. Uh, So if you email us, then uh, it's possible we might be able to get you a ticket. Yeah. So yeah, email us at podcast at theuncoverup.com. And uh, yeah, and hopefully maybe we'll see you and you'll get to see what we look like. And you'll say, that's not what I thought they would look like. No, but if you don't get to uh, come to the live uh, taping of that podcast, assuming the sound quality works out, because this is our first live one, we will be, of course, posting that as well. Yeah, maybe even video. And then you'll be able to say, wow, Lee really does look like Tintin. (laughs) 